For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, but the righteous shall live by faith. The law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we thank you that you would speak to people such as us with your word. Who are we that you are mindful of us? That you would take the time to not only knit us together in the womb, but to rescue us out of the depths of our sin. I thank you that you would use a wretch such as myself to preach your word. And I pray that um, words that would come from my flesh, that would come from me, would go unheard, but your voice would be heard this morning, Lord. pray that you would ready the thoughts and the attitudes of our minds and of our hearts, Lord, to hear your word, to meditate on it, and to be blessed by it. Let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord. Give us ears that indeed listen and hear, despite the um, frivolous nature of my preaching, despite the inadequacy of it. Lord, your word speaks. We thank you for the blessing of your spirit and the fact that you have communicated yourself to us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Harry Potter is a series of seven fantasy novels written by the British author J.K. Rowling. The books chronicle the adventures of a young wizard, Harry Potter, his friends Ronald Weasley and Hermione Granger. They're all students at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. As of June in 2011, the series had sold about 450 million copies and had been translated into 67 languages making it the best-selling book series in the history of the world. The main story arc concerns Harry's quest to overcome the dark wizard, Lord Voldemort. Voldemort's purpose was to become immortal. He wants to conquer the wizarding world. He wants to subjugate non-magical people or muggles and to destroy all those who stand in his way, especially Harry Potter. The tale is, in fact, quite thrilling. And if you've read them, perhaps you remember in the first book, Harry's mother, Lily Potter, sacrifices herself. See, the evil Lord Voldemort tries to kill Harry, but finds that he cannot touch him. And when he attempts to lay hands on Harry, he experiences agonizing pain. And so he's thwarted. Later on in the series, Harry goes to his mentor, Professor Dumbledore, and asks, Why couldn't Voldemort touch me? And Dumbledore replies, Your mother died to save you. Love as powerful as your mother's leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. Why is it that Dumbledore's statement is moving? I think it's because that we all know from experience, from the mundane to the dramatic, that sacrifice is at the heart of real love. Sacrifice is at the heart of real love. 
And we know that anybody who has ever done anything that made any difference for us, a parent, a teacher, a mentor, a friend, a spouse, has sacrificed something in some way to make a difference. They've accepted some hardship on our behalf that we might not have to deal with it ourselves. Therefore, it makes sense that a loving God, who's more loving than you and I could ever be, would come into the world to deal with the ultimate evil, the ultimate sin, that he would indeed have to make a substitutionary sacrifice. Even we as human beings know that you can't just overlook evil, that it has to be dealt with, that it can't be dealt with by just saying, forget it. It must be paid for, and dealing with it is costly. In fact, sin is infinitely expensive. It's infinitely expensive because God is infinitely good, infinitely holy, and infinitely just. Consequently, any action out of line with His character, any sin, makes us infinitely guilty before Him, worthy of condemnation. It's wrongdoing is an unpayable debt. And we can never hope to accumulate enough wealth, command enough power, earn enough respect, or do enough to pull ourselves out of this debt. To do so would demand the highest of perfection. I assume if you're sitting here this morning that you're far, far from perfect. Perhaps you even sinned a few times on your way here this morning. Perhaps since you've been here. What then are we to do as imperfect people, sinful people? Are we to despair in our suffering? As death is but always but a breath away? Are we to find a way to resolve the problem ourselves, a way to commend ourselves to God and others? What will we rely on when in an instant we're moved into eternity before the throne of the terrifying and mighty God of all things? I think that's the question that Paul lays before us in our text this morning. What will you rely on? What will you live by? If you haven't been with us here at Rockfish or if you're new, what we've been doing is going through the book of Galatians expositionally or exegetically. That's verse by verse. And what we're trying to do is trace the authorial intent or the author's argument from the first verse to the last verse. And so we're trying to take the whole book and follow his argument throughout it as he builds his argument and makes his point. We think that once we get at the authorial intent, we can find the meaning of the text, which means we can find the meaning of the text for our lives and eventually bow down and exchange our thoughts for the thoughts of God. And so we followed Paul's arguments through the first three chapters so far. I'm just going to summarize the first two for you. It's that Paul says, I am an authoritative apostle. I'm I'm able to speak on behalf of God. And I'm under the authoritative gospel. My gospel is the one true gospel. And then he kind of lays out his thesis for the letter in chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. You've heard me say this a few times now. He tells us that justification, that is being declared right or made right with God, is not by works. He says it not once, but three times. Not by works, not by works. Not by works, but by faith, by faith, by faith. And he tells us that we've been united with Christ when we place our faith in him. Now we went into chapter 3, and he's supporting that thesis. We looked at verses 1 through 5, and we learned that we come to Christ on the basis of his Holy Spirit quickening our hearts and enabling us to believe in him. And we remembered our conversion. He used that series of rhetorical questions to remind the Galatians of their conversion because they've been being led astray by these false teachers. 
Last week, we took a survey of the life of Abraham because Paul, in verses 6 through 9, points out that Abraham is the man that was credited as righteous, that he was justified by faith, just as we are justified by faith. And so Paul has argued from experience and from Scripture. And now he's going to argue again from some more Scripture this week, but also from the cross itself, from Jesus' person and work itself. It's kind of the climax of his argument in chapter 3, this section of it. And then we're going to move in to his next argument next week, which will start and we'll do verses 15 through 25 then. But this week, this morning, I want you to look at verses 10 through 14 with me. And we're going to keep this in mind that the main idea of our text is Paul is urging us this morning, he's asking the question, what are you going to rely on to commend yourself to God? He's reminding us that one should rely on the person that became a curse in order that we might inherit the blessing. He's urging us this morning to rely on the one that became a a curse in order that we might inherit the blessing. It's the main idea of the text this morning, and it's also my exhortation to you. It's faith in the crucified and risen Lord. So, without any further ado, let's look at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, but the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Paul is going to, his argument to this morning is kind of split into two different pieces. Uh, It's pretty easy, actually. Curse and blessing. So people that do these things, he's going to list them, are going to inherit the curse. And he's going to tell us why. And he's going to say the people that do these things are going to inherit the blessing. And he's going to tell us why. So that question, uh, what do you rely on or what do you live by that's at the center of what he's talking about, is going to confirm whether we're under Curse or blessing. So what you live by is going to determine whether you're under curse or blessing. Paul uses these first verses here to show us that those who rely on works of the law are cursed. Uh, And in the first verse, verse 10, they're cursed because you must obey the law perfectly to be justified by the law. And Paul's pointing out clearly that no one keeps the law perfectly. He's actually quoting a, a pretty interesting section from Uh, Deuteronomy, in the 27th chapter, he quotes verbatim the 26th verse, which says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of the law by doing them. And all the people say, Amen. This is actually a really interesting thing in in Deuteronomy. You see, Deuteronomy records the sermons of Moses, and he's telling God's people what to do. And uh, they go up on two different mountains, Mount Mount Ebal and Mount uh, Gerizim, or I can't really say it. I think I said it right. Gerizim or Gerizim. There's two mountains. That's what you need to know, right? So there's two mountains, and he splits up the Israelites, and one, the, one people go on one mountain, and a group of other people go on the other mountain, and the priest stands in the middle in the valley. And what happens is they pronounce blessings and curses to which the peoples on the mountain are going to respond, Amen. They're kind of walking through their, their covenant with God, and they're confirming their adherence to it or their acceptance of it. So if you can picture it with me, you got the, the people on the mountain of blessing, and then on the other mountain you got the people on the, the mountain of cursed, and you got a guy in the middle, and he's just kind of reading things from the law. Right? So he's saying, perhaps, Cursed is the man that maketh any graven image. And the people on the mountain of curse are going to go, Amen! Now, like, like, there's hundreds of people up there, right? So it's just like coming down. I think it would be probably pretty cool. 
Um, and then he's going to, the priest's going to turn his back. He's going to look at the people on the mountain of blessing and he's going to pronounce a blessing. Blessed is the man that maketh not any graven, graven image. And when the people on that mountain hear that, they're going to respond with amen or with all our hearts. We believe this. We affirm this. And so you have blessing and you have curse. And the people are recognizing this on the mountain. And the section that Paul quotes is at the very end of chapter 27, which is the section on curses. And he's saying, we have affirmed these things that unless you keep the law perfectly, you will be cursed. So, if we're going to find life by the law, then we're going to have to keep the whole law. Every last bit of it perfectly. There's no sliding scale. There's no grading curve, which I took advantage of when I was in college and in high school. You know, It's good when other people don't do so good. It brings down the standard. But God's not like that. We can't bring down the standard. See, when we fail to keep the law, even one part of the law, we fail to keep the whole law. Kind of like James says that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point of it is guilty of breaking all of it and has become a lawbreaker. Such people, lawbreakers, that's you and me, Paul says are cursed by God. Now you might be sitting there going, maybe I've broken a law or two, you know, biblically speaking, and but I'm... I'm pretty good. I'm a good person, you know, compared to, you know, like maybe my wife looks at me and goes, compared to my husband, I'm pretty darn good. You know, if, if, if he's the standard, I've got it going on. I'm no worries. But if that's your thought, let me, let me try to help you think about it maybe like this. Um, if you're in the state of Virginia, for instance, and you break a law, um, you can't justify yourself by saying I've kept other parts of it. Perhaps, like, if you get pulled over for speeding, do you say to the officer, well, listen, it's not... That big of a deal. Didn't kill anybody. I didn't murder anybody, so I'm good, right? Or maybe you see somebody walking down the street and you just walk up and you punch them in the face real good, take their wallet and their purse, run away. No, no problem. I've kept the rest of the law. Well, no, you're a law breaker. A company can't get away with poisoning the water supply and then say, well, we paid our taxes. We've kept part of the law, so it's okay that, that we didn't keep this other part. That's not how it works. You have to keep the whole law to be perfected, is what Paul is pointing out. And when we don't keep the whole law, we fall under curse. Some of you are thinking, I, I'm pretty sure I got all of you with speeding at some point, right? <laughs> We've all done that. And so we're all lawbreakers, even by the standard of the United States government. Paul is saying to the Judaizers, none of us have kept the law perfectly, not even close. And therefore, by relying on works of the law, we're under a curse. Which takes us to verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified, that is, made right, declared righteous, before God by the law. And I translated it different than what you're seeing up there. I translated it, for the righteous shall live by faith. You see, that question is coming up, right? What are you living by? What are you relying on? Those that rely on works of the law are cursed because justification is by faith, not the law. No one's going to be acquitted on the basis of the law. To live by something means that we rely on it for our happiness or for our fulfillment. Whatever we live by is essentially the bottom line of our lives. It's what gives us meaning, what gives us confidence, what gives us definition, what gives us identity. What gives you identity and confidence? What is your life based on? I want you to think on this question. What if you lost it? would devastate you, would make you feel as if you had no life left. 
these things that we rely on for identity, for purpose, to be made acceptable, to commend ourselves to others, to give us meaning, are not, not bad things, but they're not God things. And oftentimes they usurp God on the throne of our hearts and they rule our lives in the place of Jesus. So what's your idol? What's your counterfeit God? Is it your athletic ability? Is it your sexuality? Your intellectual capacity, perhaps. Maybe it's just being superior to others morally, financially, physically, politically, artistically. Maybe you commend yourself based on your great taste in fashion. Maybe because you you have a great family. What is your idol? What is your counterfeit God? Maybe your spouse or your children. Spouses and children are wonderful joys, but they, like these other things, make terrible, terrible gods. What are we guilty of building the meaning of our lives on more than Jesus? What do you live your life by? It's interesting that typically we we don't want to place our faith just in Christ. We want to disperse it and place it in all these other things. And I think the reason behind that is because when we put our faith kind of in other things, maybe athletic ability or achievement or whatever, maybe making ourselves lovely or, or beautiful, is that we have a part to play in that. We can earn. We can earn, and we also expect others to earn. The earning and the do-it-yourself nature is kind of the default position of our hearts, isn't it? I think think a good example of this is uh, the recent um, baseball, the steroid stuff. Do you remember in the late 90s, we had that great home run chase. You had, you know, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. They were chasing Roger Maris at 61 home runs. And, man, they were just hitting him out of the park, like, every night. And I I think a couple years later, Barry Bonds hit, like, 80 or 70-something, like, just crazy numbers. And we were all really excited. But then we found out, well, these guys use performance-enhancing drugs. They cheated. See, nobody would care if it was just some journeyman, just some guy in minor league baseball using steroids. But we do care because the people that had made it to the top of the game seem to have cheated to get their way there. If you're going to get there, if you're going to get to the top, if you're going to earn millions and you're going to set records and be the best of the best, you've better earned your way there. They better have done it the right way. They shouldn't have cheated. They needed to earn it. I think sometimes it's true when uh, people look down on others when they inherit money in our culture. They're disrespected because they didn't earn that money. They They were just born and inherited. They didn't do anything to get it. I think that's part of the American way of life. The right to be self-made men and women. To earn our way in this world. To find identity. To define ourselves. But the American way is the gospel way. It's more like the way of the works of the law. Which is the way of death, which is the way of curse. See, Paul here, his words are for you and they're for me. He's urging us as he's urging the Galatians, to be, he's exhorting us to examine ourselves, to see whether we are in faith, to test ourselves. What are you living your life by? What do you think makes you confident? What do you identify yourself with? Money, power, respect. What is it that pulls at your heartstrings and demands your attention? The law is not of faith, the verse 12, 
The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So those who rely on works of the law are cursed because works of the law and faith are incompatible. They're oil and water. They're fire and rain. Look at the first part of the verse. I'm sorry, the second part of the verse first. It's a little, I think it's worded a little different. I think perhaps an easier way to translate it might be, the one who does the commandments, that's commandments of the law, shall live by them, by means of them. And Paul's simply saying that those who do what the whole law requires will live on the basis of their obedience. So if they keep the whole law perfectly, they're good. But of course, as he's insinuated earlier, his premise that's kind of unstated there is that no one can be righteous by works of the law because it requires perfection. So now we're going to look at the first part of the verse. The law is not of faith. What does Paul mean here? After all, like, God gave the law and it's supposed to reflect his character and who he is. And and we've even said here that the law is romantic, right? It teaches us how to best love and serve God. It teaches us about God. It's like kind of like training wheels for riding a bike. It shows us how we can love him rightly. We've, we think the law is kind of a good thing. So I think Paul here is attacking the misuse of the law. What I mean by misuse of the law is using it in such a way that it would, we would be justified by it. So for the Judaizers, it's circumcision and dietary restrictions, right? They're going to try to use those things to make themselves commendable or acceptable to God. Now, like like I've kind of tried to show us earlier, is that our works look different than their works, right? We try to do it maybe on the basis of how how good we can sing or um, how well we can play an instrument or how beautiful we are, how much money we have, how much respect we command. We try to work our ways into being commendable in different ways than the Judaizers. And just like these things, you know, the ability to sing or or paint or or all these different things aren't bad things in and of themselves. They're good things that should direct our worship to God. They can be acts of love or um, aspects of our lives that flow from faith. They can also be works of the law where we try to commend ourselves to God, just like for the Judaizers, circumcision and dietary laws were, right? They can be acts of the law flowing from faith, or they can be a work of the law, which is an attempt to justify self. I think uh, John Piper illustrates this really beautifully for us. If you want to imagine um, the law like a railroad track. So God gives the law to show the route to heaven along which the engine of the Holy Spirit pulls us as we're coupled to him by faith. So he just kind of pulls us down the railroad line on a, on just on a straight path. But what happens when we misuse the law we do what the Judaizers did and kind of these religious people do. They, they take that, that railroad track and what they do is they pick it up, they raise it up just like this. If it's setting on end, they just take it and they raise it up and they set it like this. They turn that railroad track into a ladder by which they're going to climb and make themselves acceptable. It's a misuse of the law. So Paul here is attacking, attacking a failure to both use the law rightly, and we can't keep the law, and so it condemns. So that, but what he's not condemning here is the desire to keep the law. Like, we should desire to do those things which are holy, which are godly, right? But when we desire, we don't desire to do those things that are godly in order to please God, but to make ourselves acceptable to Him, we sin. So the heart behind the action going to dictate whether that action is an act of obedience, affectionate obedience, flowing from love and flowing from faith, or a work of the law that is actually selfish, trying to merit its own salvation. 
So to summarize, verses 10 through 12, those who rely on works of the law are cursed because one must obey the law perfectly, because justification is by faith alone, not the law, and because the law and faith are incompatible as it pertains to justification. Now that Paul has explained the the curse and those that are under the curse in those verses, he moves on to explaining the blessing. And his point is going to be that those who rely on Jesus are blessed. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ redeems believers from the law's curse. The cross is the sharp point of the gospel. It's scandalous. The spotless, innocent Lamb of God is executed on behalf of you and me. Sin demands punishment. It demands death. Yet God loves us so much that He decides not to let us die, which He could have done and been completely just. He could have just let us die. But instead, He acts in love and in mercy And he comes to earth in the form of a man. And he takes the punishment for us. He becomes a curse for us. Jesus experiences the curse of divine rejection. He didn't simply just take the curse, but became a curse. Legally speaking, Jesus became sin. And the only way for the curse to be removed is through the redeeming work of Christ. Paul again quotes from Deuteronomy, this time from the 21st chapter and the 23rd verse. It says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, when people were executed in the Old Testament, they would um, not be cur- they would typically be stoned, and then they were hung on a tree. But the body was hung on a tree as a symbol of divine rejection. The man was cursed not because he was hung, but rather he was hung because he was cursed. So the people that end up hung on a tree in the Old Testament are hung because they are cursed. What Paul's trying to do here is he's trying to draw a line from those people that would be hung on trees and cursed all the way to Jesus, whose execution was on a tree to show that he experienced the divine rejection. Jesus on the cross frees us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He takes the punishment that we rightly deserve. Jesus is our substitute. He is as Isaac's ram last week. This doctrine, which is uh, at the center of Christianity, along with the resurrection, is known as penal substitutionary atonement. That's a mouthful, isn't it? If you want to impress your friends, you just drop that on them in the middle of conversation. So really, I, I'm, I think a lot about the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. They'll be very impressed with you, but it's really not all that complicated. Uh, The death of Jesus uh, was penal in that he bears the penalty when he died. He bears the penalty that you and I deserve. His death was also substitutionary or substitution in that he was a substitute for us when he died. He took our place on the cross. So some things that we want to point out about the nature of our justification and the nature of what happens at the cross is that we deserve to die as a penalty for sin. We deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. We're separated from God by our sins. And we are in bondage to the kingdom of Satan. We are enslaved to sin. But Jesus takes care of all of these things for us in that He is our sacrifice. He pays the penalty of death in our place. To remove us from the wrath of God, 
He takes the wrath for us as a propitiation for our sins. That is, he puts us back in right favor with God. He satisfies the wrath of God. He reconciles us back into right relationship with God. And he redeems us from the captivity of our sin. Friends, salvation means more than simple forgiveness. We don't just have our slate wiped clean. We also become perfect in God's sight. And we stay that way. See, we believe as Abraham believed and we're credited as righteous. We receive the blessing of Abraham, that is, the Holy Spirit. We live by faith. This is played out uh, on the cross and in the life of Jesus. And perhaps you've often heard me say, Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. Jesus died the death, I'm sorry, he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. Just a really concise phrase that I've kind of adopted from uh, Tim Keller. And I love it because it has so much packed into so short a phrase. It's just really concise, action-packed. You see, part of it is, is that in the first part, I'll break it down for you a little bit, is Jesus lived the life we should have lived. It's a reference to Jesus' perfect obedience for us. This is also what theologians call his active obedience. See, if Jesus had only wiped the slates clean for our sins, if he'd only earned forgiveness for us, then we would not merit heaven. Our guilt would have been removed, yes, but we simply would have been in the same position that Adam and Eve were in the garden. A disobedience away, a step away from disobeying God and fracturing everything. Jesus' life of perfect obedience to God earns righteousness for us. And so he obeys the whole law, his whole life. In that position, his works merit our position. They're credited to us as righteousness. He lives the obedient life that we fail to live. And so instead of our lives being infinitely in the red, when Jesus dies, he is our substitute. The slate is indeed wiped clean, but that just takes us back to zero, right? Back to even. But what Jesus does as our sacrifice, as part of his active obedience, his good work, keeping the law perfectly on our behalf, he takes us from infinitely in the red to infinitely in the black. It's credited to our account as righteousness. He lived the life we should have lived. And Jesus died the death we should have died. This references Jesus' suffering on our behalf, also called his passive obedience. The other one was his active obedience. This one's called his passive obedience. Throughout his life, Jesus would be a man of sorrows. And his sorrow would culminate at Calvary, for it was there that he bore the penalty for our sin and died in our place. He experienced physical pain. He had sin thrust upon him. Spiritual pain. He experienced abandonment of his family and of his friends. All left him. Most difficult was that he bore the wrath of God on our behalf by becoming a curse for us. Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. He becomes a curse for us, our substitute, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, come to you and to me, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith, life together with God. And as Jesus rose from the dead, so shall you rise. Therefore, we can cry to death. We can sing that hymn that Paul writes in Corinthians. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death is now nothing more to the Christian. Death is nothing more than merely a portal through which we step into the eternal presence of God. You see, sacrifice is at the heart of real love. In the novel, A Tale of Two Cities... 
Charles and Sidney look very much alike, but they both love the same woman, Lucy. She chooses and marries Charles. They have a child. The setting of the story is during the French Revolution, and Charles, who is a French aristocrat, he gets arrested. He's imprisoned and he's sentenced to death, to death by guillotine. At the end of the novel, Sidney, who is English, visits Charles the night before he's supposed to be executed. And he offers to exchange places with him. Charles refuses. But Sidney has him drugged and he smuggles him away in a waiting carriage. Then Sidney takes Charles' place. Charles and his family escape afterward to England. But that night in the prison, a young seamstress who is also condemned to die, comes up to Sidney and begins a conversation with him, thinking him to be Charles. When she realizes that it is not him, her eyes widen. And she asks, Are you dying for him? Sidney responds, And his wife and his child, Hush. Yes. The seamstress then confesses that she is terribly frightened. She's not sure that she will be able to face her death. She asks this brave stranger if he will hold her hand to the end. When the time comes, they go to death hand in hand. And she finds herself composed, comforted, even hopeful, as long as she keeps her eyes on him. The girl in this story was sinking under the weight of her trial. Her strength was, was giving out. But then she was smitten by the wonder of his substitutionary sacrifice. It enabled her to face the ultimate test. Is this story moving? Is the story of the sacrifice of Lily Potter for Harry Potter moving? It's part of what draws us into the great drama. Is the sacrifice here, a substitutionary sacrifice, moving as it pulls us into the great drama? Yes. But friends, the gospel does one better. It's not just a moving fictional story about distant characters. It's not just a fictional story about someone else. The gospel is a story about us. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I will not nullify the grace of God by trusting in works, by living by works. But I will live by faith because the righteous live by faith. And my faith is in Christ Jesus, who gave himself for me, who obeyed God for me, that I might live and have life together with God. If the seamstress was moved by the sacrifice that wasn't even for her, how much more should we be moved and empowered by the discovery that Jesus has given himself as a sacrifice for us? Sacrifice is at the heart of real love. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Theologically rich, simple, true, deep, moving. This is the good news, that Jesus loves us. That he became a curse for us. That we might inherit the blessing of Abraham, the Holy Spirit. Paul sets before us a choice this morning, just as he sets before the Galatians a choice. Blessing or curse? Which will you live by? Works of the law? Things that you want to build your identity on? Money, power, beauty? I don't know what it is for you. 
Or will you live by faith in Christ? What will you live by? Christian, I want to exhort you to relearn this gospel every day. Relearn this good news every day that Jesus loves me. Non-Christian, I want to urge you with Paul this morning. Move your faith from faith in self to faith in Christ. Move from being under the curse and into blessing. 